Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Over 90 times in the Bible, the term gospel is used, and it means good news. But it's more than just good news, folks. It is the best news the world has ever heard. And of all things, this news came from a graveyard outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. Because there on that first Easter, the angels uttered that most wonderful news, He is not here. He is risen from the dead. And so that's what I want us to think about this morning. I love Easter. I love all the events of Easter. Certainly love all the candy and those malted uh, eggs. I love those. And the ham. You've got to love that. But Easter is not about bunnies and baked ham. It is about the blessed gospel. To our online family, and I know you could not be with us today for some reason, but we sure wish you were here. We love you, and I can't wait to see you and hug your neck. And I know some of you aren't feeling well. Please know we love you and praying for you. Now, as we begin today, I thought we might have a little bit of exercise. Don't be scared now. We uh, don't want anybody to flip out on me, but... We, uh, I thought, maybe a little spiritual exercise. I was reading early this morning Psalm 47, and uh, the very first verse started off with this wonderful statement. And here it is. Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. Now, maybe it's been a while since you clapped to God and shouted to God. Maybe you've never actually shouted to God, but I can't think of a better day to have some sustained praise than today. I think it would definitely be in order. So here's what I would like for have us to do. We're going to take five seconds, and we're going to give God a wonderful clapping, and we're going to give Him a shout. So you're welcome to shout anything that's scriptural, not the giants are the best or something like that. But but if you want to shout out to the Lord, hallelujah, or praise the Lord, or of course He is risen, but we're going to, I want you to try to get those lungs exercised because the Bible says to do that. He said, clap to the Lord and shout. And uh, I'm believing that we ought to do that at other times besides just on Easter Sunday. But we're going to take five seconds and have sustained shouting and clapping. All right? So let's all stand. And when I give the signal, here we go. All right? Now, some of you, I know you're going to bellow it out. So uh, 
Let's all get ready. Ready? On the count of three. One, two, three. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. God is good. <laughs> he is risen. Woo, glory. <laughs> Thank you. Hallelujah. <laughs> all right. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, doesn't that feel good? I know our... At the State of the Union speech, our president got sustained applause for I don't know how long, but I think we ought to give it to Jesus even more than that. Easter. It's been said that Easter turns every hurt into a hallelujah, every tear into a pearl, every midnight into a sunrise, every Calvary into a resurrection. It's because of Easter no foe can confuse us. It's because of Easter no fear can conquer us. It's because of Easter no fault can condemn us. And that's the message of Easter. Now, I know some Christians prefer not to use the word Easter. They'd rather use the term Resurrection Sunday, and certainly that's good. They have concerns about the pagan roots of the name Easter, but in reality, more and more, Bible scholars are discovering that the origin of the term Easter is kind of obscure. In fact, they're saying it could be a transliteration of a German word. And forgive me for butchering this if you know German. But the word Aufsterhung actually is the word they're saying is a transliteration for the word Easter. And interestingly enough, that word means resurrection. Well, whatever term we use, I will tell you, We here at the home church stand unashamedly behind the symbol that unites our faith. And that is the symbol of an empty cross. And that is what we stand behind this morning. There's an empty cross at Calvary for Jesus isn't there. He died. He was buried. Then he rose again to take our sins to bear. There's an empty cross at Calvary to prove our Jesus lives. No greater love was ever shown than the salvation that he gives. The empty cross, the empty grave, life eternal. You have won the day. Shout it out. Jesus is alive. He is alive. When the followers of Jesus arrived at the tomb on that first Easter morning, They found that the stone of all things, imagine that, a several-ton stone had been rolled away uphill. Even though Jesus had clearly spoken of the fact that he would rise from the dead, they really didn't understand it. And then two angels appeared asking, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. The scene at that empty tomb expresses the very uniqueness of Christianity. Among all the religions of the world, Jesus Christ is the only living, risen Savior. There was a conversation between a Christian missionary and a Muslim teacher. It illustrates this thought vividly. The Muslim wanted to impress the missionary with what he considered to be the superiority of Islam. He said, you know, missionary, when we go to Mecca, at least we have a coffin. When you Christians go to Jerusalem, your Mecca, you find nothing but an 
empty grave. To this, the wise believer said, Indeed, that is exactly the difference. Muhammad is dead, and his teachings are in the coffin with him, but Jesus is risen, and his truth lives on, and he is alive forevermore. Resurrection, Easter, it is the rising of the God-man. It is the validating that Jesus, in fact, is God in the flesh. It is the greatest truth the world has ever known, the greatest event. The Apostle Paul told the Colossi church, he said, when Jesus was crucified, when he was nailed to the cross, he also nailed some things himself to the cross. He paid in full the debt that we each owe. And in this passage we're going to look at, he secured four wonderful blessings. And that's our message today. Three buddies were discussing death. And one asked in the group, what would you like people to say about your funeral? He was a great humanitarian who cared about his community. stated one, he was a great husband and a father who was a wonderful example for many to follow. Reasoned the other one. The third friend, he said, well, I would like people to say at my funeral, Look, he's moving. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, this morning, I will tell you about our Lord and Savior. He is more than just moving. He is ruling and He is reigning forevermore. And so that's our message today. We serve a risen Savior who has gotten for us four wonderful blessings. Let's bow our heads for a prayer. Father, we thank You for the great truths this morning. Thank You for the wonderful singing the great fellowship, Lord, the giving, the music has thrilled our souls. And now, Lord, would you be with us in this time. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go to Colossians chapter 2, if you would, please, if you'd be finding that. And I would like us to read together three verses out loud. Some of the most remarkable in all of Scripture. But first, a little brief background before we read. It was a custom in ancient first century Roman world, which the Roman government really oversaw much of the Mediterranean basin. When a person had gone through the courts and they had been found guilty, and if, especially if they were put in prison, they would take a document and they would affix it to the prison door. That document was called the Certificate of Debt. On that certificate, they would write the crime that the person was guilty of, then the penalty. For example, how long he would stay in prison or she would stay in prison, the amount of months or years or whatever. When they had served the time, the certificate of debt would be handed to the judge. He would then notarize it as been fulfilled. They would put a cut through it, and they would mark it, and they would say, Paid in full. That's the scenario that Paul is referring to here in these verses. Now let's read together Colossians 2, verses 13, 14, and 15. Let's read them out loud. You have the King James Version here uh, on the screens, or you can look at it on your phone or your iPad or your Bible. But uh, let's read it out 
like you mean it this morning, all right? Ready, begin. And you, being dead in your sins and the circumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you of all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. On some occasions, a person who was accused and even went through the court system and became guilty of a crime, whether it was true or not, especially if it was a corrupt government official, they would crucify the person. Not all persons convicted of a capital crime were crucified, but many were. You couldn't be crucified if you were a Roman citizen. It was the most heinous of all torture known to mankind. By the way, they would then take a, uh, an, an inscription, put it above the person's head on that cross where they were crucified, detailing their crimes. That's why Pilate nailed that above our Lord, attempting to mock him because he supposedly was involved in an insurrection that uh, he was trying to overthrow Caesar. Jesus Christ, King of the Jews, was the accusation. In fact, it was real. But now from God's point of view, when God the Son was nailed on the cross, He also nailed some things to the cross. While people thought He was dying for His sins against Caesar, in fact, He was dying for our sins against God. In this, it was both tragedy and triumph. Tragedy because it was the dirtiest deed ever done. The people that put our Savior on the cross lied. They were underhanded. They were evil personified. It was the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of civilization. It was hard hearts who raised those hammers and drove those nails. And yet He died, not only for them, but for us too. And so on one hand, it was a tragedy. But on the other hand, it at the same time was a triumph. Because when Jesus was nailed to that cross, He paid in full and He secured for us four wonderful truths. And we're going to go a little deeper than sometimes we do on Easter Sunday. So I hope you've gotten your ginkgo or hope you're paying attention. Don't be distracted now. There's a terrible story and I've, you've probably heard it before. It was about a man who got distracted. He was out playing golf one Saturday morning. His wife became concerned because he had not returned home. That was after dinner. Finally, midnight, he came through the front door exhausted. Where have you been? She demanded. I've been playing golf. That was 18 hours ago. What happened? Look, honey, I've been having the best game of my life when I got distracted. I was two under par. When on the seventh tee, Harry had a heart attack and died. His wife's like, what? Well, after that, it was hit the ball, drag Harry, hit the ball, drag Harry. He got a little distracted. So let's keep our eye on the ball and let's not get distracted. It's a deep subject, so let's go through it here. Number one, because Jesus paid it all, your life was given back to you. 
Verse 13, you talk about a narrow escape. Listen to this. And you being dead in your sins. The Greek word paraptoma is the word for sins there. It means deliberate, willful deviation from truth. That pretty much describes sin. You being dead in your sins. Notice the last part of the verse. Hath he quickened together. He gave back life. We read in this verse the ultimate dodging of the bullet. And you being dead in sins. You'd say, I'm dead in sins. Yes, he's talking spiritually. Everyone today, through one form or another, for the most part, has heard the real truth. And I want to clarify that there, unfortunately, is a difference between real truth and some that have fake truth, although they will let you think it's real truth, especially the left will do that. But the fact of the matter is we're referring to Scripture. The only 100% inerrant, infallible source of truth. Every one of those people who have heard the Scripture, us people, young and old, have sinned. Paraptima. They have deliberately gone against what is right. There's an old story about a preacher who is attempting to prove the universality of sin. That preacher got fired up in his sermon. He thundered in his message, every member of this church is a sinner. When he said that, a man on the back row, a big smile came across his face. The bewildered preacher looked Thought he maybe hadn't gotten through, so he cranked up the volume. He said, look, each and every member of this church is, in fact, a sinner. To that, the man smiled even bigger. So the preacher figured he'd take the direct approach, and he said, mister, on the back row. He said, I said every member of this church is a sinner. Didn't you hear me? The man laughed out loud, and he said, I'm not a member of this church. <laughs> Well, the truth of the matter is, whether you're a member of this church or another church or no church, we're all sinners. We have all sinned willfully against God. Each of us are all walking around then. Because of that, we are walking around as spiritual dead men. The Bible said that the minute we became aware of truth, we at some point, not very long thereafter, broke it. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 7 and verse 9. And here's how the Holy Spirit phrases it. He said, I was alive without the law. Meaning, before I really got the truth in my head of Scripture, I was not accountable. But when the commandment came, when I became aware of scriptural truth, that's when I died. Because shortly thereafter, I willfully, intentionally went against sin. The Bible beautifully sets the accountability. Yes, as Romans chapter 6 clearly states then, because of that sin, there is a death that's required. Romans 6 and verse 23 says the wages of sin is death. That's why it says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses in sin. God gave us the power to get our life back. The moment he rose from the dead, when he did that, 
He came out of the grave. That means we someday will come out of the grave. That means I am no longer have to be dead in my sins. When God the Father raises up the head of the body, and Jesus is the head of the church, what then follows is that the body goes with the head. Recently, one of our rural members invited us to a poultry processing day otherwise known as butchering chickens. But anyway, they invited us out there to take care of these chickens. We weren't able to attend, but they did tell me that it is in fact true that chickens do run around with their heads cut off. But that is not the church of Jesus Christ. The church, if Jesus is in the grave, then the church is in the grave. But if Jesus is raised up, the church is raised up because the church is the body. There's no body that runs around with its head cut off. And you have the quickened who was dead, it says. He gave us our life back. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, all day long. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. How much did he forgive? Look at verse 15 of Colossians 2. Having forgiven all. Having forgiven all trespasses. Now, if you'll notice the tense of the grammar there, and you can, put on your thinking cap for a moment. Having forgiven. That means it's already a done deal. He forgave all of our past sin. He forgave all of our present sins, and brothers and sisters, He has already forgiven all your future sin, all trespasses. That shows the fact that everything has been taken care of by God. Notice the word forgiven. It is a word, charisma. We maybe have heard the word charisma, someone who really has ability to, you know, woo people The word charisma in Scripture means gift. It's the word, the base word for the word uh, grace. By God's grace, we're forgiven all our sins. We have been forgiven and we will be forgiven. A hundred percent undeserved. All. No exceptions. There is not one sin. There is not one sin done once or a million times that Jesus wouldn't forgive. Our past may have some earthly consequences. We may have to deal with a broken marriage or a broken body because of sin. But I tell you, the wonderful thing is, our life has been given back to us. That's what the wonderful and passionate Old Testament minor prophet Micah said in chapter 7, verse 19. You love this verse, I do. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. He buries all their sin. That's an amazing thing. There was a 10-year-old boy who wanted to be a pastor when he grew up. And one day, uh, his family's cat died. And so he had the opportunity to do some practice preaching by conducting a funeral for the little cat. So he found a shoebox, he put the kitten inside, gently placed the cover on the box. However, all the cat wouldn't fit in. 
So that little mini reverend cut a hole in the lid so the furry tail of that cat could stick out. He rounded up his friends, and like any good pastor, he preached a good Bible message and then buried that cat in a shallow grave. Well, when the service was over, he noticed that the tip of that little cat's tail was sticking out of the ground. And so then, every two or three days, curiosity would get the best of him. He would go secretly, pull that cat up by the tail, and then he would rebury it. Well, eventually the tail came off, and the body stayed in the grave. Well, I think the fact of the matter is, many of us do that with our sins. We've been... They're under the blood. The Bible says all of our sins are forgiven. They're all taken care of. And yet many of us will go and we'll grab those sins and we'll let them defeat us. And we'll let the devil steal our assurance. Now, thank God, he never steals our security, but he can steal our assurance. He can steal that away from us. That assurance that comes with knowing all of our sins are gone. Well, because Jesus paid it all, our life was given back to us. Verse 13. Number two. Because Jesus paid it all, our slate was wiped clean. Verse 14. Now, if you were honest this morning, I think you would agree with the wonderful hymn, The old account was large and growing every day. But I was always sinning and never tried to pay. That's why verse 14 here is such a freeing truth. Look at verse 14. First part, blotting out the handwriting. Say that with me, please. Blotting out the handwriting. Yes, that's what God did. Now let's examine this amazing and vivid imagery. To us, that's like, well, what is that meaning? Well, it, the word blotting out there, you can look it up. It means to anoint something or to wash it completely. Ancient documents were often done on papyrus, a form of paper, or vellum, which was the substance made of the skins of animals. Ancient ink really had no acid in it. And so when they would write on the surface of either that paper or that um, skin, it would just lay on the surface. It wasn't like modern ink that would get down into the paper. Sometimes a, a scribe, to, make, to save some money, would uh, take vellum or paper that was already been written on, would take a sponge and would anoint the paper would anoint the vellum. He would wipe off the writing. And because it was only on the surface, if it had the right kind of a product, they could actually wipe it off. That's what God is saying. In the same way, by God's amazing mercy, because Jesus died and rose again, and because we accept the gospel into our heart, God expunged the record of our sins completely. He anointed it. He paid in full. It was as if it had never been. When you look at that vellum, that writing is gone. That's what Paul was saying here in Acts chapter 2. Isn't it a wonderful reminder in verse, uh, in Acts, excuse me, Acts chapter 3, verse 19. In Acts chapter 2, though, uh, Paul uh, spoke about. Uh, Excuse me. Peter preached a, a great message on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was named such because it was 50 days after the resurrection, after uh, the uh, feast uh, there. Here, Peter stood before those people and he told all of his brothers and sisters, uh, his fellow 
nation. He said, look, I, if anybody knows what it's like to blow it, I know it. I, I've blown it big time. I really messed up here over these last few weeks. I betrayed my own Savior. But I'm telling you, He has taken my sins. He has blotted them all out. Look what He said in chapter 3, verse 19. Repent ye therefore. I repented and God blotted out my sin. By the way, that phrase there is meaning imperative. You need to do this now and don't delay. Be converted that your sins be blotted out. The picture there is of a heavenly record. God is the bookkeeper and every day He's writing down sins. Here is what John said in Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 12. And this is a graphic picture about the great white throne judgment. He said another book was opened. A book of life and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Yes, it is a fact that God writes down sin. And that's why David said in Psalm 51, in verse 1, he said, Have mercy upon me, O Lord, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out. There's that word again. Blot it out. God, wipe all my sins. We have the idea, oh, well, it's not there, but in fact, God wants to wipe them out. I love that passage in Isaiah 43, where the prophet reminded his people. He said, God's the only one who can wipe away any spiritual defilement. Look at verse 25. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Here God is reminding them that their sins can be washed away. Now, in the case of our sins, it's not vinegar or some substance, some water that can wash away ink off of a piece of paper or vellum. No, it is the blood of Jesus. No amount of religious sincerity, no amount of good deeds is potent enough. Only the blood of Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, can wash away our sins. That's why John the Baptist in John chapter 1 verse 29 was so accurate when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away, which blotteth out the sins of the world. One of my fascinations when I was in grade school was uh, a person by the name of, he was long gone by then, but a person by the name of Harry Houdini. You've heard of Houdini. Well, he actually died in 1926. But his claim to fame was an illusionist that could get out of any kind of a lock. He had the flexibility of a snake. They'd put him in coffins, he'd get out. They riveted him into a big boiler, he got out. They sewed him up in canvas bags, he got out. Well, he, in the latter part of his life, as he got not well, he uh, came to his wife and he said, uh, Honey, I don't know if I'm going to live much longer, but here's what he said. He said, if there is any way out of death, you know I will find it. And I'll make contact with you. And I will do it on the anniversary of my death. He did die. And so every year on the anniversary of his death, for ten years, she would keep a light burning above his portrait. At the end of ten years, she turned out the light. She knew that her husband was not coming back. There's nobody that has escaped death. 
Not Harry Houdini, not anybody, but Jesus the Lamb did, the spotless Lamb. And He gave us back our life. He wiped our slate clean. Number three, our arrest warrant was nailed to the cross. Look at verse 14. Now, I hope that you've never been in such legal trouble that you had an arrest warrant issued for your arrest. But maybe you have. I will tell you this, however, and you need to know this. Each one of us have a spiritual arrest warrant out for us. And we need to do something about that. It's not going to go away. Verse 14, that's why it says blotting out the handwriting. Blotting out the handwriting. And what's going to happen? There was an ordinance against us. That's the, that's the uh, decree that's against us. Contrary to us. And took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross. The handwriting was literally a handwritten record of the crime. Being guilty of the charges, certainly as charged, the person would have to sign it and say, I'm, it's true, I'm guilty of that. Paul told the Jewish and other leaders scattered around the Mediterranean in Romans chapter 2, he said, you know you're guilty and I know you're guilty. How do you know you're guilty? Look at verse 15 of chapter 2, which show the work of the law written in their hearts. Your own heart tells you you're guilty. And he goes on to say, your conscience, which is another function of God. And also bearing witness that their thoughts, meanwhile, accusing or excusing. And doesn't that describe our society today? One group is accusing and the other group is excusing. And then they just flip around. But the fact is we're all guilty before God. We're all guilty of God's truth. You notice it says there are ordinance against us. Well, that's meaning the Bible. It's not against us and somehow it's wrong or it's bad or it's not true. It's just meaning it's against us in that being having to go to prison for those things is not fun. It's, a, it's hard. It'd be terrible. But God said, Jesus came. He nailed that to His cross. Here we find another illustration. The first one is blotting it out. Now we have another illustration. You take this written record that's against us, against us because of our sins. Then what happens is once it's been paid, they will take it and they will put a hole through it, kind of like they used to do with checks, you know, put a little mark on or a check on it. Here they would nail it and say, it's done. Jesus took my sin. He took your sin. Not without the greatest pain ever. Not without so much that He went through. You know, we live in a day where people doubt the Bible, doubt its veracity. One lady wrote into a question and answer form in her local newspaper. The person that she, uh, the columnist actually happened to be a Christian. Here's what she wrote. Dear sirs, our minister said on Easter that Jesus just swooned on the cross. He didn't really die. And that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? Sincerely bewildered. Well, the columnist, Bible-believing columnist, said, Dear bewildered, beat your pastor with a cat of nine tails with 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross. Hang him in the sun for six hours. Run a spear through his side. Put him in an airless tomb for 36 hours and see what happens. <laughs> no, Jesus was dead. In fact, He was. But when Jesus hung on that cross, 
He did more than hang on a cross dead. Look what it says in Galatians 6 and verse 14. He nailed something to the cross. Look what it says, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ by whom? Now listen, listen to this, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. When Jesus died, he nailed sin to the cross. When he died on that cross, he took the charms and the pulls of this world and he nailed it to the cross. In fact, Jesus took a hammer, as it were, and he nailed it to the cross. As the old hymn says, but drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Our salvation is free. Our arrest warrant has been taken care of. It has been nailed to the cross. It is no longer against us because of what Jesus did for us. And because He came back from the dead, it's in fact a done deal. Jesus paid it all. Because of that, He gave us our life back. Number two, our slate is wiped clean. And number three, our arrest warrant was nailed to the cross. And finally, number four, our enemies are stripped of their authority. Now, not only is our past taken care of, and not only is our present cared for, but our future has guaranteed victory. Look at verse 15. And having spoiled principalities and powers, He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. He triumphed over every principality. What are these principalities and powers? Here, the illusion is two. One, that they would all be very recognized. In those days, Roman generals who vanquished their enemies would strip them, take their weapons, and then lead them through the towns and the cities as vanquished foes. And that's what he's saying, because that's what I have done to Satan. Look what he says in Ephesians 6 and verse 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Jesus destroyed those principalities. That doesn't mean they're gone. He just meant He took away their power. Look what it says in Hebrews 2 and verse 14. For as much then as the children, that's us, we're the children of God, are partakers of flesh and blood, also, excuse me, also Himself, that's Jesus, likewise took of the same. He became flesh and blood. Now watch this. That through death He might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. The devil put Jesus in that tomb. The devil sealed that tomb. The devil made sure that he was crucified. He did everything in his power to make sure that Jesus wouldn't come back. And when Jesus was on that cross and he said, It is finished, the devil said, Yeah, it's finished. But Jesus said, No, you're finished. No, you're the one who is going to, you've been vanquished. And that's why the great uh, apostle said in John chapter 12 and verse 31, Now is the prince of this world cast out. The fact of the matter is, when Jesus nailed, was nailed to the cross, Satan was finished. He was nailed to the cross. And it says in, back in chapter 2 of Colossians, he was triumphed over them openly. Folks, we don't serve a dead Savior. A dead Savior is nobody's Savior. A little boy was in a classroom and the teacher gave an assignment. He said, I want you to write an essay on the world's greatest living person. Some wrote about a president, other scientists, some 
people in education, others in the sports world. But one little boy wrote an essay about Jesus Christ. The teacher got the paper and said, it's a nice paper, but I think you misunderstood the assignment. I said the world's greatest living person. The little boy said, the teacher, he is alive. He is alive. I close with this. A seminary professor lost his wife. She passed away at a very young age and untimely death. He had a little preschool boy with him. The professor took his little boy to the funeral home to see the body of his beloved wife. They looked at that body there in the casket and almost looked lifelike. The little boy looked at his mom and the father tried to explain that he wouldn't see mommy again. He's going to go to heaven. The little boy looked at dad and said, Daddy, no. No, Daddy. Mommy is just asleep, that's all. And the dad said, no. No, honey, uh, he's, she's dead. He said, no, I've seen her like this many times. She'll wake up. And then he began to say, Mama, please wake up. Please wake up. Mommy, wake up. She looks so lifelike. Your husband's heart was broken, having to hold the hand of that little boy there, pleading for his mom to wake up, and then, through tears, this wonderful Bible professor hugged the shoulder of his little son, and he said, Son, no, we can't wake her up, but I will tell you something, Jesus will, because Jesus came out of the grave, he will wake mama up. We'll see her again. Because Jesus is alive. All of our sins have been prayed, paid for. Every born-again believer will be raised with Him. And that's our guarantee. And we're going to close this part of the service. And I'm going to pray the most powerful prayer in all of the Bible. And yet at the same time, amazingly, it is the simplest. It is known as the sinner's prayer, and most of you, I'm sure, have heard the prayer, maybe certainly prayed the prayer. But if there's somebody here that for some reason has not prayed this prayer, I want you to pray it. Now let's all bow our heads for a word of prayer, if you would, please. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want you to listen to this prayer, because it really captures what we talked about this morning. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I'm sure of that. I ask you to wash all my sins away. I accept you as my Savior. I believe what the Bible says. You died on the cross and you rose again. Come into my heart. Amen. Now with our heads bowed, it doesn't have to be those exact... We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.